She wrote a short treatise about the fairies of Colburn Woods. Fenella, I remember her. She was a pleasant werewolf. The fairy queen was smiling faintly, but did not sound welcoming. I've come to ask for your help, said Domino. Of course, why else come now when you've never cared to visit me before? You're not the first McCrinnell to visit in recent times needing help after neglecting me. Queen's faint smile disappeared. It's hardly flattering. My not visiting you was not out of disrespect. Rather, it was from having no wish to bother you for no reason. What help do you require? It concerns the werewolf hunters. I already helped with them. We need more Queen Devine. We need a way to enter the guild's house that can't be found. Otherwise, many werewolves will die. The Queen studied Domino keenly. Your own death does not trouble you, does it? No, but I want to defeat the guild. Death didn't seem to trouble your cousin Thrix either, said the Fairy Queen. I can sense another in your family far away, Calix. She's looking forward to dying. Perhaps there's some problem with the McCrinnock werewolves that you should all be so unconcerned about dying. The fairy queen looked towards the trees. A hedgehog peeped out from the undergrowth, but seeing Domino, withdrew swiftly. I can't give you more sorcery to be used outside these woods. Without my protection, all the creatures of Colburn Woods face a freezing winter. Would one more spell really cause you great trouble? Sorcery that would enable you to enter a house that can't be found does not count as just one more spell. It would be a treasured piece of magic. The stone dwarves were cunning, and overcoming their cunning is not easy. But you could do it, said Domino. Yes, but I can't give away any more of my power. Domino nodded gravely. Very well. I appreciate your time. She reached inside her coat and drew out a small canvas bag. I brought you these as a gift. Queen Dithine looked surprised. What is it? Twelve thistle brooches, all different. The fairy queen opened the bag and studied the contents. She drew out a brooch and then another. She smiled broadly so the grade seemed to light up. <coughs> there are twelve of these. Dithine drew more out, examining each one with pleasure. I love thistle brooches. How did you know that? Fenella McCrinnell recorded it in her book. The Queen pinned a brooch onto her dress and another below it. I hunted many shops in London, said Domino. I hoped it would be a suitable gift. The Fairy Queen cried out in pleasure as she took out another brooch. This is lovely. I'm pleased you like them. I'll take my leave now. Domino turned to go. Oh, this one is even nicer, said the Fairy Queen. 
Wait, Domino McCrinnell. You appreciate you're making a difficult request? I do. Domino waited. Do you know the fire elemental, Queen Malveria? Yes, said Domino. Do you like her? I don't dislike her. We have little in common. Fairy Queen smiled. That's true, though you're not completely dissimilar. I met Malveria when we were children. We became friends with Gazanda, a princess of the Stone Dwarfs. Her parents weren't keen on their daughter meeting us. They kept her locked away in their own house that could not be found. The fairy queen gently rubbed the tips of her fingers with one hand together. Out of nowhere, two tiny blue flowers appeared. But it never stopped Cassandra from coming out to play. She was such a funny, bright child, always laughing. What fun we had, Malveria, Cassandra and I. The fairy queen smiled. I remember we were all playing in the big circle of stones on the Isle of Lewis, and it started to rain. Malveria almost cried because she was a fire elemental, and she thought the rain would just extinguish her. We were only young at the time. <coughs> so Gazanda used her powers to move the stones and make us a shelter. We had a picnic under the stones, looking out at the rain. Queen Dithine smiled. Malveria was never worried by the rain after that, which is unusual for a fire elemental. She looked at the flowers in her hand. Cassandra's parents, trying to keep her inside, never bothered her. She had a spell of her own, you see. The two-flower pathway. As long as Malveria and I had one of these flowers and she had the other, she could just walk in and out of the house. I'm prepared to let you use this spell. The fairy queen handed the flowers to Domino. With his sorcery, you can create a path. Domino examined the small blue flowers. Thank you, Queen Dithine. An expression of sadness flickered across the fairy queen's face. It was brief, but Domino noticed. What happened to the young Princess Cassandra? She married a prince. They became king and queen of the minister. He was a warlike king, and together they fought many long campaigns. Eventually they invaded Queen Malveria's land. Malveria killed them both in battle. The fairy queen fell silent for a moment, remembering. Afterwards, the stone dwarf cursed her for killing the rulers. Malveria is too strong for their curse to trouble her. Even so, she's always regretted killing Cassandra, and she doesn't like to speak of it. Thank you for your help, said Domino. I'm grateful and honored. Domino walked back down the slope. As soon as the werewolf disappeared, the queen shrank to her fairy size and flew to the nearest tree, where she sat for a long time, thinking about her old friend, the princess, 
and the fun they'd all had together. When Duthine, Malveria and Gisander were all young and had no responsibilities. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. I was fair transported there to the fairy forest. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Now, our next speaker is Chris Roberts. And Chris's latest collection of stories feature um, South London bus routes. And here we are, South London on a bus route. Marvellous. And I know that buses are fantastically exciting places. And all sorts of things can happen. The, the other day, in fact, I was on the top floor of the 196 and I caught a man Googling himself on the top floor of the one night. And uh, luckily, however, I do have a black belt in date stamping, and that young man was shortly afterwards walking down Cold Harbour Lane with overdue stamped in a rather private place. So that was the end of that. Anyway, without further ado, please welcome Chris Roberts. Hiya. Um, I like to start any gatherings with a, with a small prayer, bring us all together at this, um, this evening. You may know the words, so I'm going to do a particular variant of it, but I'm not uh, denominational, so you can join in if you know a different version. Our Thursdown, who art in Hernhill, New Malden be thy name, thy Kingston come, thy Wimbledon, in Earlsfield, as it is in Balham, give us this day our Deptford, and lead us not into Penn Station, but deliver us from Esher, for thine is the Kennington, the Wandsworth and the Bromley, for Erith and Erith, South Croydon, South End. It's the uh, South London bus driver's prayer. So, um, I've written a book. It's uh, so, short stories set on, linked by, connected to South London bus routes. Imaginatively, it's called Bus Travel in South London. And it's, uh, it's kind of homage to the place I've lived more than half my life, and um, some of the stories are very real stories about love, growing up, family, dealing with death, um, the communities, the uh, history, if you like, of South London, and uh, some are more what you might describe as magically real stories, and um, so there's kind of vengeful goddesses living at the top of Streatham Hill, there's a shapeshifter in a a river rhine shapeshifter underneath the elephant and castle shopping center and ha had some problems um selecting almost because the collection is divided between day bus and night bus and the night bus tends to be the spooky ones but we live in we are now in britain's second biggest city it's uh, four million people linked by geography and buses and the problem is this is a place that has teams of bus preachers this is a place that, on the Old Kent Road, has a Hellraiser bus stop where people leave copies of the Hellraiser video at the top for people to admire from the top deck. It's also a place where, um, at the Nigel Road bus stop in Peckham, the Peckham Terminator has been filmed. Look this up late, it's a lot of swearing, but it's well worth putting into YouTube. And these things are real, all of these are real. Therefore, it became very hard to kind of judge what was gonna be uncanny and what was going to be real, but I've, I've split the stories up <coughs> in, uh, along those lines. The um, bits I'd like to read for you tonight actually come from a previous project I was involved with called One Eye Grey, which was a uh, 
it was an attempt to recreate the Penny Dreadful for the 21st century. And what we did is we got writers, we published 40 different writers in the end, um, retelling London folk tales and ghost stories like they were happening in the, in the modern era, kind of recasting them, if you like. And um, I've got two bits of flash fiction from that were published in One Eye Grey that I'm going to read out because alongside buses, South London also has most of the oldest bit of the first electronic tube, which is the line that runs from King William Street in the city down to Stockwell, built by the uh, Mr. Greathead and his giant shield. It was this kind of new tunnelling technology. And I think because it is the kind of oldest bit of the electric tube proper, it's kind of got a lot of ghost stories connected to it. So I'm going to um, read a couple of stories from that. Um, so I'll adopt my reading voice for this. First story is called The Ghost Shift. Martin strode through the tunnels from Oval, glad to be on this stretch rather than the elephant to Kennington part. He wasn't a particularly skittish man, but tales of odd doors opening and closing at the Kennington Loop had him slightly rattled. It was with some relief that he came upon the works party, slightly earlier than expected, they were only a few hundred yards down from Oval, fixing a section of track. He stopped and chatted for a while, mostly about football. And Martin went away, cheered by the sly humour of the tube worker. Charlton for the league, he laughed, trying to frame the incident to tell his supervisor as he turned the corner and found the real works party where they should have been in the first place. Do, do be careful of the Kennington Loop. It's uh, quite a notorious spot. Also, I'm going to make a ghost story for prediction for the future when the new bit of the Northern Line goes off towards um, Battersea Power Station. There'll be new ghost stories arising from the people who died in the tube in the war. That kind of legend will re-emerge. So the second story is from the Bakerloo Line. Um, just uh, and it's, it's a story that's changed over the years at least the character involved, the central character involved has changed, but there's a lady that walks, she's only ever seen on the last tube back and the first tube out between the elephant and um, Lambeth North. Out of the club and onto the first tube at the elephant, they slumped in the carriage and settled back for the journey to Piccadilly where they had to change. Sleep at this point would be fatal as Phil had found to his cost more than once. So he kept half an eye open as a train began rumbling into life. He soon had both eyes wide open and nudged Joanne because out of the driver's carriage walked or rather drifted a woman. She passed right by them, heading towards the next carriage. Just as she reached the door, the lights went down for a few seconds and the train lurched the final bit into Lambeth North. Phil jumped up looked down the platform. There was no sign of the woman. Then he ran back to look through the next carriage. No sign of her there either. As he settled back by Joanne, who was looking extremely pale, he said, do you know what? I think I might knock the pills on the head for a while. <laughs> so these are two fairly standard bits of London ghost stories. I'm going to leave you in the interest of balance with a, a brief story about um, North London. It's a ghost story, a ghost called Rebecca Griffiths, who 
was uh, an inmate of Bedlam Asylum, which, for those of you who don't know, used to stand where Liverpool Street Station is now. And Rebecca is caught on CCTV. She ghost story goes back centuries, really, and she stands at the um, where the station is with her hand out, and her hand is empty because in life, when she used to stand there, she used to beg. She had a penny in her hand. And when she was buried, somebody stole the penny. So she's kind of condemned for eternity to stand in Liverpool Street Station, which is a pretty grim thing to have to do, um, any, any way you look at it. And in order to um, pay homage to Rebecca, if you like, um, if you do buy a copy of um, Bus Travel in South London, it's 9.99, and I've provided some deliberately aged chemically treated pennies as a sort of homage to Rebecca. And I quite like the idea that if you buy a book, you will also take home part of a 600-year-old raging revenant from an insane asylum. What could possibly go wrong with that? Thank you very much. Marvellously spooky for Christmas, that was. I'm, I'm, I shall go to the bookshop and demand my penny. I didn't get my penny back. So, <clears throat> thank you very much. Now, our next reader is Eamon Somers. Now, Eamon is from Dublin, where he has been a lifelong campaigner in the city's lesbian and gay rights movement. And he's had several stories published in magazines. And tonight, he's going to be reading from his first novel, I believe, which is being published by Unbound. Now, uh, Eamon used is, is a graduate of Birkbeck College Creative Writing. Now, I used to work in the library at Birkbeck College in the 90s. I could tell you all sorts of things that used to go on between the stacks there, but I won't. I shall invite Eamon instead. Hi. Good evening. Julian Ryder and Dolly Considine have very little in common. Julian is an 18-year-old aspiring writer, fleeing a life unlived, and Dolly is knee-deep in running a she-bean-type hotel, populated by family secrets and dodgy politicians. Most of the novel is set in Dublin in 1983, where Julian is making up stories about Dolly's guests and the family. But in this extract, set in 1956, Dolly has just taken over the hotel, left to her by her late aunt. So you may have seen um, some of these on your chairs or table. Um, I'm crowdfunding for the book at the moment. It will be published by Unbound sometime next year but we have to reach 100% of funding before we can get there. Essentially, I have to sell about 350 books in advance, and uh, I'd be grateful if you like the reading tonight that you think about buying. Thank you. Dolly Considine's Hotel, 1956. Dolly was cleaning room 11 when she found the box on top of the bedside locker. She recognized the name printed on the side from hearing it whispered in the bar and knew the content's purpose immediately. The box went straight into the wastebasket carried from room to room 
and slid beneath the jumble of empty shampoo sachets, bits of cotton wool, train and cinema tickets, and the long blue wrapper from a bandage, as well as the old bandage left by the woman in room six. I've lived and worked in England for nine years, the man who'd occupied the room for four nights had told her as he settled his bill. In Ballyliffin, County Donegal, my fiancé has waited these six years, a model of Irish womanhood. The house her father and brothers built for us has stood forlorn for nearly four years. It needs a woman's touch and the patter of tiny feet. Dolly was tucking in the bottom sheet when she recalled him even earlier, at breakfast, tucking into his bacon and eggs, and being just as florid in describing his fiancée's nut-brown hair and comely figure to another guest. Had he already abandoned his condoms by then, or had he waited until he returned to the room to collect his suitcase? a symbolic marker between his temporary existence in Birmingham, his real life in Donegal, legal in England, an offence in Ireland, but sinful everywhere. When she retrieved the box from the basket, she found that one of the greaseproof envelopes had been opened. Had the contents been used and washed for reuse, or been abandoned? after the paper was torn. She imagined his partner asserting herself, maybe at the sight of him fiddling with the wrapper, balking at the idea of committing a compounding sin with much worse consequences than just pregnancy. Dolly used her duster to clean streaks of shampoo from the cardboard and put the pack into her po apron pocket. A frisson of some sort ran through her at the thought of offering them to a nameless man, trying to balance a sophisticated casualness in her manner with the need to prove that she was not a loose woman. Hours later, while registering a married couple from County Donegal, she wondered why the Donegal man had risked the dangers of customs officers searching his luggage and publicly shaming him, only to willfully abandon his condoms in the Curra House Hotel, when he could have passed them on to a friend, or even made a little profit. It was only the briefest question of the opened condom ever coming into intimate contact with Dolly before she flushed it down the second floor toilet. Would she regret her squeamishness when legal replacements were impossible locally. She smiled at the Tipperary man being clutched by his wife as he signed the register and wondered if he was the sort of man to put an unwrapped condom back into its box. She wasn't sure how it was going to happen and she didn't have any man in mind, but she felt a longing, not just in her head, but down below also, the unopened companions would be the agents of her own unlocking. Behind her smile, she giggled at her silliness and handed the wife 
the key to Room 11. Thank you. Thank you, Eamon. I'm intrigued to see what happens to them. Now, our final reader for this set is our very own Zelda Riando. Hooray! Founder of this very event and uh, local author and artist. Now, the first time I heard of Zelda was when a young man came into my library and he said, he asked me if I had Fukushima dreams. I said, I'm a really young man. What I dream about is none of your business. Anyway, <coughs> please welcome our very own Zelda Riando. everybody. Hold on while I do a slightly short person thing. Hear me? Um, so I'm not going to read from Fukushima Dreams uh, because I've been working on a new book about a woman who cuts a pretty shit deal with the magpies. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to start. Victor took the train to Crofton Park and walked down the small high street towards Brockwell and Ladywell Cemetery. The first gate he came to was locked, so he continued on, keeping the cemetery railings to his right until he came to the main entrance. The gates... Oops, lights gone off. The gates ajar an invitation. Entering, he was presented with a choice to take the left or the right path. The right path was broad and well cared for. The path on the left was narrow and overgrown, studded with ancient graves leaning in towards his feet, all entwined with ivy and brambles and bindweed. A blind angel, features worn with time, breasts breckled with lichen, turned her head away in grief. Ahead of him, the narrow path stretched out into a darkening vista, trees grown overhead to form a tunnel of green that obscured the sky. If there was any writing on the stones, they were too worn to read. Names, dates, and epitaphs alike consigned to the dustbin of history were the hungry figures, fingers of Mother Nature. Victor paused for breath. Of course, he'd brought the notebook with him. He kept it on him all the time now. He'd come to enjoy the ritual of recording, mingled with his notes on the movements and behavior of magpies for other jottings. He kept a log of his journeys, following the points of the map. He'd come to realize there was a passion to the places that she sent him to, and that it was connected to the strange symbol and the cutting. He knew she would read the notebook, so he never mentioned her. Oblique references here and there, but certainly never by name. It wouldn't do. Highgate Cemetery, Bunhill Fields, Walthamstow, West Norwood, Old Barnes, Camberwell, Brockley, and Ladywell. What was her purpose in sending him to these places? Cemeteries all to the east, the west, the south, the north of this great city. He'd forgotten the scale of it until he'd started making these journeys, the thousands upon millions of dwellings, the way the train cuttings bisected the denseness of it. 
the many unvaried people that formed villages and tribes within the vastness of the city that was never still. But here, in amidst the graves where they came to their final sleep, or rotted, and were eaten by worms, depending on what you believed, here there was some peace. He came to a bench and decided to sit a while. After all, he was a kind of bird spotter and had an idea that you never spotted them on the move. Bird watchers hide in the shadows and keep still and silent. Not a soul was around. A light breeze rustled the leaves above his head. A squirrel ran down a tree trunk and across the path, never glancing at him. He made himself even more still. Sunlight dappled down through the leaves and played tricks with his eyes. He closed them. Felt the cemetery around him. Felt the warm air brushing his cheeks. The time-worn wood of the bench beneath his fingertips. Wondered what he was doing there. And then he heard it. The scold of a magpie. The sound was unmistakable. He opened his eyes and there they were, perched on the tilted stones, astride the path, one almost at his feet, six of them, six as hell. Eva had told him to look for a hollow tree in the new part of the cemetery, next to the allotments. It seemed a very public place to hide a secret, in plain view of both people visiting the grave of loved ones and gardeners digging over their potatoes. He supposed that they must have other things on their minds. His own parents were buried far away. He hadn't visited them for many years. They'd passed away within a short time of each other, as if they couldn't bear to be apart, and he was left alone. He came to the end of the old part of the cemetery and found the playing fields edged with a thin strip of playground, fenced off and inhabited by shrieking children. Here, the grass was shorn, and the graves marked cheek by jowl up the slope, the most recent not yet capped with stones. A single, giant weeping willow broke the monotony. Victor stopped to rest. He looked around for a bench, but there were none, just a low ha-ha running along the edge of the burial plots, and he couldn't quite bring himself to sit there. He paused a while and leant on his stick. He could see another big tree up ahead, and as he approached it, a gap opened up in the fence to his left, through which he could see the allotments Eva had mentioned. That must be the one. There was the trunk, and within it, a dark, shaded hollow. Reaching it, he could see that time, woodworm, or rot had eaten the hole inside out. He peered down inside, but couldn't see into the shadowed depths. There was nothing for it but to reach his hand in. As he felt around inside, he discovered a section where the rot had left a kind of shelf, and on it, his questing fingers touched a small package. He felt his heart contract and looked around to see if anyone was watching. 
A lone woman stood before a grave several hundred feet away, her back to him, in an attitude of grief. His fingers clenched around the package. Without looking at it, he slipped it into his pocket and walked on. The night shift. In his cubbyhole office in the IT department, Lawrence was idly watching the cameras cycle through on the banks of screens around him. Kind of like the Starship Enterprise, except he alone was lord of all he surveyed. Or so it seemed, in the dead of night when he was alone in the Sanctum Sanctorum. Then he could forget his line manager, Nigel, who patronised him, and the other drones on the IT team. With its threshold monitors, HUD arrays for every server, generator, water, blinking lights monitoring data traffic, this place could very justifiably be described as the brain of the hospital. Here lived the records of every procedure, every patient, every staff member, each requisition. Here lived every email and instant message. Communications with the outside world had to get past this firewall. And of course, it worked both ways. Nothing could get in either. Here lived a list of approved websites and banned ones. Here lived the intranets and email servers, the lists of blocked attachments and approved senders. Lawrence saw it as a sacred trust. Be terribly easy to abuse. There were many safeguards, or so they thought, but few systems were impenetrable, especially with a little bit of knowledge and determination. It was his job to keep them safe. He was worried about Charlie. She often came to work late, and last week he'd noticed that her cheekbone was outlined by a dark bruise, stark against her pale skin. Lawrence hadn't quizzed her on it at the time, but he was sure it was Eva that had inflicted it. The effects of the mental wounds were subtler. Charlie was almost snippy, her usually limitless patience and short supply. As well as arriving late, she would get calls and abruptly vanish. She was perpetually broke. Something was going on with that girl, and Lawrence made it his business to find out what it was. He considered what he would need to do to get hold of Eva's data. In theory, both smartphones and bricks could be hacked, with varying degrees of success and difficulty. Easier by far to gain cloud access, passwords, usernames, then Facebook logs, text messages were open. He wanted to know what she'd been doing with that old man outside the hospitals. He wanted to know why they were surrounded by magpies. He wanted to be able to listen to her voicemails, to read her emails, her texts, her WhatsApp messages, her Facebook posts. He wanted the entire digital footprint. On the periphery of his vision, he noticed movements on an upper monitor. Visiting hours were long over, and the corridors were deserted. The wards darkened down from the night. The upper floors quiet too. Only, wasn't that Doc on his way to his office on the seventh floor? Must be working late again. 
As a consultant pathologist, Doc had every right to be in the hospital late at night. His work wasn't shift-based. Perhaps he'd left something behind. It was out of character, though. Doc was usually gone by 4 p.m. Lawrence downloaded a timestamp screenshot and added it to the file he'd opened on Doc. When he spent time watching more time watching people than interacting with them, you noticed small changes in their behavior. And Lawrence had always been good at spotting patterns, sorting the signal from the noise. It helped when you have the data. So if you want to know what happens next, you're going to have to wait a little while. Marvellous spooky stuff, more spooky stuff for Christmas. That's the end of the second set, everybody. Time for another break, a drink, a fag, some food and some books. Don't forget to buy the books. We'll see you back here in a few minutes for some music. <laughs> 